You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. You've bought your tickets. The ushers are about to open the doors. Yes, the projection has smicha is about to start. But first, you've heard of me on this platform touting NRS, a great company whose many dedicated employees I get to see in action. NRS Pay has recently launched its new cost-cutting program called Cash Discount. The way it works is any vendor using NRS Pay Cash Discount has their sale register tabulating automatically a dual pricing, which offers customers a choice of a cash payment, which could result in up to a 4% discount over swiping their card. If your business meets the $18,000 a month threshold, there's absolutely no monthly fee to incur. NRS Pay Cash Discount makes it less expensive to accept credit cards, so you'll save money while helping your customers save at the same time. NRS is offering a time-limited deal right now on this state-of-the-art system. You'll get a free card reader with zero hidden fees, no long-term contract, and no early termination fee, which means you can switch your processing plan without penalty. NRS Pay is a proud part of the IDT Corporation that I've been associated with for over 10 years and has integrity built into its corporate DNA. I know its founder and officers and salespeople, and they truly stand by their product and will help you with live stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Check nrspay.com for more information or call 833-289-2767. And now here's the projectionist, Hasmicha. Enjoy. Queer the Isles, the projectionist, Hasmicha. I'm here with Yitzhak Kolakowski, and tonight we're going to talk about something which you know, for modern audiences, they sort of shy away from. They they sort of, it's like a reality that people don't want to look at. And that is, of course, people that are large. We're talking really about fat actors, especially comedians. Today, it's look, probably, you know, correctly so, there is a, a tremendous amount of emphasis on being healthy. It isn't just about your body shape and being able to fit into a Speedo. Uh, it's about, we know what obesity brings. And the idea of somebody being enormously or even slightly overweight, it, it's like, ooh. It's interesting because, you know, it, it's it's going back the other way where, you know, there's, there's the whole stigma against fat shaming. There, there's a popular cartoon called Bluey about a family of dogs and the one there's one scene that was extremely controversial where he's standing on the scale and he's looking at his belly and he said you know I better go on a diet some uh, I, I don't know if it was childhood psychologist that thought, thought that this was a form of fat shaming and it shouldn't not appropriate for children's cartoons. But, but you know, on one hand, we don't want to fat shame. On one hand, we don't want to make people feel bad. We want to have Barbies that are fat. We want to have, uh, you know, the we want to have Dove soap models uh, that are extra size. We don't want anyone to, you know, we don't want anyone to say there's wrong with being a big woman. But on the other hand, uh, we do believe that, isn't it? terrible that this actor got so big isn't it terrible look 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 i'm sure there were so many health problems and the truth is many of the actors who were big and we want to talk about some of them tonight had a, a number of, of health issues and and probably they were exacerbated by the extra weight they were carrying we we all know the rubenesque model uh, the idea of fat being healthy but clearly in the advent of the 20th century and clearly now in the 21st century you know, we we sort of have an extremely 
weight consciousness. In fact, there were many films in the 50s, by the way, that were all about the new athletic push for people to lose weight. There was a, a number of films that that really sort of made fun of the health craze, but didn't necessarily dismiss it. Well, I, I you know, we know there's so many actors and actresses in Hollywood who, Laird Krigar was one of them, who actually, I think what caused him to die was a certain medication he was on that would somehow help him lose weight. Judy Garland, of course, who who became almost, you know, so thin at certain times of her life, was also based on these weight-losing drugs that, that were forced upon her because, you know, she was she was fat-shamed to the point that, you know, she couldn't get parts and she couldn't get starring roles. And and, and we know that the type of, of extreme things that these actors and actresses did in order to get ready for a part. I mean, if, we, if we're going to start, you know, darshaning about it, everybody knows, of course, about Robert De Niro, you know, his performance as Jake LaMotta in Raging Bull, that uh, in order to play the older, fat Jake LaMotta, uh, he ate <laughs> and ate in order to put on 50 real pounds. So, you know, the idea of, 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 of weight, of weighty actors and actresses, I think it's, it's, it's a very big picture. As we said, let's zero in on the, on the clowns. Let's zero in on the ones that, that, that the, the, their girth was part of really their appeal. You know, the, the, the first famous one is talk about fat, fatty Arbuckle. Well, he, he did not like that nickname. You know, he insisted people call him by his name, which was Roscoe. But yet that was, that was the name that he was always given in the credits. A very popular, of course, silent film comedian with the Keystone cops that worked with Buster Keaton, with Charlie Chaplin, with Stan Laurel in those early days. And, did a lot of good, you know, physical humor, but also, you know, just his facial expressions and stuff. You know, there obviously wasn't much to be done verbally, you know, except the intertitles in the silent film. So it wasn't. Uh, was he usually meant to be some sort of jolly, friendly person, or was he a more yeah. of a? He never played the heavy. He never, as far as I saw. He might have been. He might have been heavy, but he never yeah. played a villain. Not that I can recall. Now, now we talked about Fatty when we were when we dealt with the uh, female directors. We talked about Mabel Norman and her working with Fatty Arbuckle. And again, because of the, you know, how things were not so exact and recorded in those days about who contributed what, so we weren't sure exactly how much Fatty was the director and how much Mabel was. But he clearly, especially in the silent era, you needed to be a Kolbynik, as we say in Yiddish. You needed to be someone who could. You know, sometimes direct, you can write, have an aspect in camera work. So, you know, Fatty was part of that period. Now, I think, you know, there's an infamous end to his career. Yeah, well, it wasn't exactly the total end, but it was a, it was near an end. There was a woman, Virginia Repe, who uh, died under very um, mysterious, you know, circumstances. And he was accused of raping and murdering her. Even though he was found not guilty, and and there seems to be zero evidence that he was involved with it, that scandal ruined his career. But it didn't totally end it. He did, uh, for a while, do some work with with various pseudonyms, particularly directing. And then in the end, he did try to do. I think he made one or two talkies that weren't very successful. Yeah, and and I guess it sort of ties in 
to people's prejudices. And I wonder, you know, the fact that he was overweight, the fact that he was a big fellow, uh, did that make people you know, sort of believe, even if he was found innocent, who knows what sort of sick person he really is? Yeah, not, not only maybe sickness, but, you know, uh, a typology that he wasn't able to track people in, in any normal way. Even though he was happily married, and his wife said that he was a very modest and chaste person. Not, you know, she testified as a character witness in the trial that he was he was very um, tenua, even even in their private life. So let's 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 now move to someone who really was successful in making the jump from the silent films to talkies and had a career in both. Somebody whose image, whether you've seen his films or not, you're I'm sure our listeners are familiar with, and that is Oliver Hardy, who's part of the uh, the great comedy team of Laurel and Hardy. There's been many who, Dick Van Dyke and others, who have talked about the brilliance of Stan Laurel and how Stan Laurel was really, in a way, you know, because he he was a writer and he did some directing. I'm not sure if Hardy, if Oliver Hardy, gets his 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 due in people's mind. Uh, he's not, he's much different. We were talking off pod. He's much different than Bud Abbott, you know, in terms of this, uh, you know, straight man to the, to the silly one. Yeah, in, in many ways, you know, you know, I think we, we said before that, you know, take Bud Abbott, uh, you know, take Lou Costello away from Bud Abbott and you don't have much of a, of a talent. I think Hardy, Oliver Hardy was funny on his own terms. He didn't necessarily need to. Re, his reactions off of Laurel are, are are not only so well known, but they're brilliantly timed, classic, perfect. I mean, the 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 way they work together was really something. But when we talk about the fat guy, part of it is 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 how thin and sort of almost emaciated and weak Stan was. I don't know if if, if you would just see you know Oliver Hardy. In a film, you'd say, oh, that was that fat, fat, fat guy. I think it, part of it is the contrast of, 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 of Hardy and Laurel. In many ways, he's as clueless in the films as Stan is. You know, he, he, he pushes him around. That's true. But they both, they, they seem to have a, a, an affection for each other that I think is, is quite endearing. It almost, it reminds me of, you know, working in, in prison chaplaincy, you know, the friendships that develop between, inmates that you know they don't they wouldn't if they weren't stuck with each other they probably would never be friends but the fact that they're stuck with each other it's it's almost like but it's 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 not quite the same as you know we talked about of mice and men you know these two desperate individuals who are kind of stuck with each other but that's that's and and you know one is taking care of the other but here in this case they're neither really has an advantage over the other you're you're correct that that you know, uh, you know, as much as Oliver puts on these airs that he's so much superior to Stan, he he really isn't, and in many ways, Stan really outsmarts him in many of the scenes. You know, he, he's he's somewhat you know a savant, you know, in relationship to to Hardy. I know, you know, briefly, I know you saw uh, a film that was probably one of the weirdest Laurel and Hardy films a science fiction Laurel and Hardy film. Yes, it was it was called Dirty Work and Stan and Ollie are chimney sweeps and they get hired to work for a mad scientist who's in the middle of working 
on a on some kind of a formula that'll be like a fountain of youth type of a formula. And he wants to try it out on his butler. The butler is really uninterested and and the uh, you know they're they're trying to do their chimney sweep work and they wind up messing up the whole house and the butler gets very upset and he tries to go take a bath and wipe away all the, the filth from the from the work and the the owner of the house seems totally unfazed by that because he's so interested in his work and so and so he he demonstrates with the duck he d- takes a big duck puts it into the formula and puts, puts into, into, into yeah, and then the duck uh, disages or yeah, first, first to a duckling and then eventually to a to an egg which is quite funny and then so while there so he's trying to go get the butler and Stan and Ollie are like maybe we'll try it with this fish and they take a big fish out of a fish tank the fish is almost as big as the fish tank puts it in this big tub and uh, he's about to pour in the solution and and Stan says to Oliver, I mean, this is spoiling the end of the the show. He says, you know, just take a few drops. Um, you know, you can't you can't uh, pour so much in, or else you're going to make it too small. So then he said, oh, that's a good idea. Go get the eyedropper. So Oliver is standing there with a pitcher with the activating solution that's mostly poured into this big pool, and and Stan goes to go get the eyedropper from from the shelf, and he knocks him in. With the with the uh, with with the solution with the activating solution, and so there's all this smoke and and the bubbles and everything coming up out of this. And I I saw it imagining all oh, he's going to come out as some little baby, but with you know with the bowler hat and the and the tie and everything. And that, in actuality, he comes out. I guess this was a few years after the Scopes trial, maybe about six years after the Scopes trial. And he comes out as a chimpanzee with with the suit and tie and the bowler hat. <laughs> and and uh, I, I expected if he was going to say anything to him, he's going to say the classic line, here's another fine mess you've gotten me into. But uh, actually, he said, uh, I, I have nothing to say to you. <laughs> and that was, that was the, the ending line. I, I want to touch on something. You, know, you mentioned Oliver Hardy's work uh, independently. Oliver Hardy it might have been a, a Laurel and Hardy shorter, might have been Hardy by himself. And they were, he was a, a, a sailor swabbing the deck and a big wave comes and hits him in the face. He's all soaking wet. And he thought, you know, to improvise that it would be funny if he would take his necktie that he was wearing and blow his nose in it. But he realized that at that time, film was extremely expensive, and if he would have done something the censors would have said had to be edited out, he uh, Max Sennett would have made him pay for it himself. He, you know, he wouldn't have taken the cut. He would have he would have charged the bill to, to Oliver Hardy. So instead of blowing his nose in his tie, he just fiddled with his tie, and that became his his trademark. Which really became, it's really somewhat endearing. It's almost like a nervous tick when Hardy would try to assuage someone who was accusing him or something. You knew when he reached for his tie. And of course, uh, uh, Laurel, of course, his signature uh, move was, of course, his crying, where, you know, if, if, if you got too upset at him, he would just break down 
and turn into uh, jelly, not being able to uh, withstand the barrage of, of criticism. So they look whether you whether you like their films or not, they are part, so super iconic. I also want to bring out the fact that one of the things that is 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 is, is endearing many times about these hefty actors is their ability to move and dance. Yeah, you know, Oliver Hardy could shake it when he needed to. There's a lot of wonderful little uh, shorts of, of Laurel and Hardy dancing, and and I think you know you know, we see this by you know by a number of these you know these twinkle toed type of uh, you know large men. And you know, again, I, 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 the Oliver, you know, the, the film you were talking about, you know, again, we could go into a whole discussion as to this confluence of you know the horror, science fiction genre, comedy evolution as you pointed out their their longevity as a team i think is something that's in people's minds is astonishing i mean they're to me the greatest one they made was sort of they're trying to bring the piano up those stairs i mean that was just that was just the magic you know yeah. I mean, other, others have done the same shtick and like you know you mentioned whether you like them or not i it took me a while for them to grow on me i think i appreciate Laurel and Hardy a lot more now than I did in my youth. I was definitely more of a fan of uh, the Three Stooges or Abbott and Costello than Laurel and Hardy. If I if I had to pick one or the other, and now I think they're kind of equal. Now, I guess but- you know so we're talking about larger, funny fat men. I guess we could talk about Curly as well, who was sort of the uh, the larger of the Three Stooges. I'm not going to even mention uh, you know Curly Joe. I don't count him at all. I know you have a, a little bit of a soft spot for Curly Joe, but to me, um, a, a softer spot for Joe Besser, who nobody likes. But uh, <laughs> I do, I, I do. Even uh, people like Joe Besser, but they don't like him as a stooge. Yeah. Curly Joe, I. It's not so much that I like him as much as I appreciate some of the films that they did. Curly's dexterity on his feet was also something quite, quite. Quite amazing, you know. When, when <laughs> so again, I, he doesn't have the grace and finesse of Oliver Hardy, but I guess we could throw Curly in there as well. Jackie Gleason was also quite adept on his toes. Gleason is another example of the large fellow who really, you know, again, part of you know, if we talk about you know Gleason and and Art Carney uh, are clearly in a way somewhat modeled on Laurel and Hardy. Uh, that sort of dynamic that is between them. Yeah, I mean, they they certainly have more of the, the Laurel and Hardy dynamic than the than Abbott and Costello dynamic. But when I when I was a kid, you know, I kind of associated them more with with Abbott and Costello. You know, I, I you know, no, no. I mean, if you, it, it, some of the things are total ripoffs from from Laurel and Hardy. Just the 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 frustration that cramp that Ralph has uh, with Norton. It's a lot more. It's a lot. It's a lot louder. It's much more New York. It's yeah. much louder. It's much more in your face. But it also has that 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 friendship aspect. Uh, yeah. The same, he, of course. He wasn't the Southern gentleman that that Oliver Hardy was from from Harlem, Georgia. Was right. Well, you, you know, again, Gleason knew how to how to play maudlin. I mean, there were many times where you know, you know where he's sort of you can realize he's. He's regretting what he's done. He's regretting something stupid that he did. I'm stupid, 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 or something like that. And you can see almost crying. There is a little bit, there was almost a, a command from the television gods that he had to sort of do chuva at the end of every episode. 
he had to realize how how he's he's wrong and that you know he how much he should appreciate his wife uh but i think you know those those are these forced tact endings that most of the honeymooner epi- honeymooners episodes had but i think part of the uh enjoyment is to watch this big guy and of course you're right you know this was gleason's and away we go was his you know he would he would he would put his hands up to his hips and exit stage stage left sort of like snagglepuss but really you know in a way that was that was quite amusing he had, he had he had quite interesting personal life his friendship with the Liskareba from from the upper east side Gleason was very close to the Gleason had a very strong relationship with the Jewish people and he continued that of course in in, in Miami Beach where he had his uh, where his show originated from I I used to watch his show every Saturday night live from Miami Beach you know people there were people who talk about you know Chris Farley and they'll talk about John Belushi and John Belushi was clearly a, a ball of energy he 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 could he was really you know a a, a superstar comic because he was high on cocaine though yes he was he was a tasmanian devil really of comics and some of the stuff that he came up with things that he wrote uh ideas that he developed in the national you know national lampoon review and then of course in saturday night live they really are classic he also struggled with his weight but i think most people remember him as this you know quite overweight fellow and again his dancing in uh as part of the Blues Brothers, I don't think people will say that Belushi is is sort of like the jolly fat guy. He's just sort of like like the like the animal. He's just sort of like a a force of nature. I think again, we could probably ascribe and put into this rubric as well uh, um, Jack Black and what he did in School of Rock. You know, Jonah Hill and Superbad, of course, started off fat, but now he you know he lost a tremendous amount of weight. But I really want to talk about to me my favorite fat guy of them all. Uh, is John Candy. And again, I, and I, and we've mentioned a lot here today from, from Arbuckle all the way to Farley. To me, John Candy is the prototypical fat guy who is self-conscious about his weight, who is friend, over-friendly to a fault, tries to get people into it. And there are different iterations of the characters that he developed on, on SCTV. Some of them were sort of like dim-witted bozos. Others are like hustlers, like the Johnny LaRue character. And Candy used his weight, but his enormous, enormous talent behind it. Not only playing, I think we've talked about on this platform, the, the great shtick that he did as uh, a grown-up version of the beaver. And probably one of the best scenes, but also doing he did Pavarotti, Orson Welles, Alfred Hitchcock, and doing them with such a plum. He was he was a young fellow. Candy died terribly young at forty three years old from a heart attack. You can see as his films progressed how large he was getting. I think one of the films that I have I I, I might have seen it many years ago that we could maybe recommend this. Not only, of course, all the S- the SCTV's uh, material that he did before 1983, which are which is classic, great, including the Schmengis and 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 Doctor Tongue and and just you know M- Mrs. Falbo's assistant with with the great, brilliant Andrea Martin. Anything anything Candy was in or playing Julia Child in the the SCTV Battle of the Stars. Uh, Julia Child fighting Mr. Rogers. 
All of that is gold. Recommended. You, know, you can watch that over and over again. But the, the film that could make our list would be uh, 1981's Bill Murray vehicle, Stripes, that he uh, plays uh, Dewey Oxenberger. Again, in just a, a very sweet, big man who is who is pushed around in the army, um, self-conscious about his weight, uh, but obviously a person you want you you're attracted to as a nice decent fellow that you could just laugh at uh, for his antics there is a film again that that, that you can see is splash from uh, 84 which doesn't really make our cut but i think that's sort of where candy goes mainstream uh i think he gets third billing after tom hanks and daryl hannah the film doesn't really make use of him in the best possible way, but you can see, you know, Candy at work there playing the sort of lecherous older brother who in a way has a heart of gold, despite the fact that the, his pension for lechery and, and, and boozing and other things. And, and to me, the, the, the Candy film, which, which is sort of like t- typifies him and really shows him is very, very large. You can see him probably, you know, definitely in the 300 plus range is Uncle Buck. Uh, John Hughes really made this star vehicle for Candy, although it doesn't have the pathos and real brilliance, really, of planes, trains, and automobiles. Uh, you can see it's almost every scene Candy is dominating. Not only did John Candy do the animated series of Camp Candy, but Bobby's yeah, World that was one of my favorites, Camp Candy. That was, and you know, and Bobby's World, of course, has um, a character which is clearly based on John Candy. It wasn't voiced by Candy, but and there's that's an, even a bigger favorite. That's a brilliant. That's a really brilliant show, Bobby's. World. Yeah, yeah, Bobby's World is probably one of the best things that Howie Mandel has done. I, one has to also mention, I think, Candy's. I, I think it's probably one of the weakest Mel Brooks films, Spaceballs. But Candy's role in it is quite funny. Candy plays Barf, who is sort of like Chewbacca. But, you know, again, you know, like Chewbacca is funny as he is, as this, you know, as this sort of like the this giant, he's a giant Wookiee. But, you know, Candy playing basically a dog. He, he, basically, he basically plays a giant dog animal. And Candy in it is is gold. I, I can't say the same as for Rick Moranis, who of course plays uh, Dark Helmet. I think Hollywood was looking for ways to plug this fellow in uh, to find places for him. Candy was a great ensemble actor and could could do whatever was asked of him. Again, I think Chris Farley is somewhat one note. And again, again, obviously everybody's going to have their own taste about. Who, but I think the, you know the epitome to me of the jolly, insecure, overdone, lovable, fat guy has got to be Candy. Our listeners can 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 perhaps disagree. Uh, I'm sure you know I'm missing someone, but and and I mourn Candy's death. I really do. I think some of the films, you know, again, you know, many uh, people will, will will credit Candy for having one of the most more more inclusive sports films, Cool Runnings. What, what Candy sort of perfected was, you know, not it was sort of like the double expression. Like on one hand I'm on the make, on the other hand I'm sympathetic. On one hand, you know, I'm selfish now for myself, but really uh, I got to be a good guy. 
and I think in, in those ways, the type of contradictions that that Candy was able to put on the table are really so reflective of of, of all human beings, the, the, the positive energies. And again, I go back to plane trains and automobiles, which many people believe is really the, the best holiday film because of how it really allows the characters to have an arc of growth. Uh, Steve Martin, you know, coming to understand that he needs to open his heart uh, and his mind and and recognize, you know, another person uh, and and welcoming, uh, you know, Candy's character into his house. The great ones, you know, so many of them uh, really leave us, you know, so young. I think, you know, as we, you know, as we, uh, I think as we sign off here, you know, before uh, the, the Jewish holiday of Rosh Hashanah, as we go, go through the the Yom Neroyim, I think it's you know it's it's worthwhile to think about. Of course, you know the our strengths and weaknesses. It's easy Yitzchak to to sort of swear off <laughs> those extra yeah, those extra sweets and calories. Well, you know, Chazal say that Rabbi Yechanan was a Kohen Gadol and he was a Balbaster. It was because Mechilas touched him. So maybe you know there these people are b'nei like like Elionovi said that the that the, the the clowns are the ones who are b'nei because they bring shalom to people and maybe yeah. that that's the chalik of, of it might be on their level in Indian of achilas yeah especially since somehow you know and again we can't not talk about Santa in this you know in this there is something about the the large happy guy. The guy who is unthreatening. Even the Martians wanted him and Santa Claus conquers the Martians. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, my friends. Watch your step, by the way. We'll catch you in 5784 soon. Take care, everybody. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.